we'll start Ruth tonight. It'll probably take us two nights to finish Ruth. There's several things going on in the book of Ruth, some of which are obvious and some of which are not. Interestingly, the rabbinic sources I have read take a different perspective on the book of Ruth than the Christian sources I've read. And both of those perspectives are completely correct. I like them both. We'll start with the Christian perspective because that's mostly what most people know. I'll probably do the Jewish perspective next week. The Christian perspective is that Ruth is the story of Yeshua. What you have is this stranger, because Moabites, you remember, were not allowed to enter the congregation of Israel, I think to the 10th generation. So here you have this gal, Ruth, and she joins herself with Israel, marries an Israelite, and he is her near kinsman, which is to say that he's the one that has the right of redemption for her property. So as her near kinsman, if he wants to redeem her property, he also has to marry her. And in that process, his firstborn would be counted not as his own, but as the son of Melion or Chilion, which is the grandson of Elimelech. In a Leverite marriage, what happens is the, the brother or the near kinsman or the near relative of the deceased guy marries his widow, and the first child of that union then inherits the portion that would have gone to the deceased husband. You remember the first case of that was in the book of Genesis when Judah had three sons and the eldest married Tamar and the eldest died. So then the second son married Tamar and he didn't want to build up his brother's house so that when he cohabited with Tamar, he wasted his seed on the ground instead of impregnating Tamar because he didn't want the first son to inherit the double portion, if you will, of Judah's estate. So the thing about Ruth, of course, is she winds up being in the line of David, and she also winds up then being in the line of Yeshua, the Messiah. So the idea here is you have a kinsman redeemer who redeems by marriage someone who is an outcast, if you will, and brings her into the kingdom, and she then becomes essentially an ancestor of the king. So Christian commentators see it as the story of Yeshua, where Yeshua is our near kinsman, he's our redeemer, he's the one that is going to come and redeem those who are his from the curse and so forth. We'll talk about the rabbinic take on it next time, I think. But right now, we'll just go with the Christian context. So on to Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi. The names of his two sons were Mahalon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. So a couple of things. Elimelech, he's from Judah, lives in Bethlehem. Elimelech means God is my king. Naomi means my delight. Interestingly, Mahalon means sick. 
as in ill or diseased. And shilion means pining, as someone who pines away, you know, somebody who is heartbroken, depressed. Just two terrible names to name your two sons. As I think everybody knows, biblical names are prophetic. But lots of times people name their children something that just sounds nice and they don't have any idea what it means. I mean, there are baby books and so forth that can tell you what names mean. But Nathaniel means gift of God. Daniel's God is my judge. So there's lots of names that have come to us in English that I would imagine lots of little kids get named and their parents don't completely understand what the names mean. I would think that that's probably not the case with Elamelech, since they are speaking Hebrew and the names are derived from Hebrew. But you remember we did a couple of weeks ago the Gospel in Genesis, where you've got the names of the patriarchs before the flood, Adam, Seth, so forth. And each one of those names, of course, means something. And we saw that when you string those names together, the translations say that man is appointed mortal sorrow, the beloved God shall come down, teaching, his death shall bring the despairing comfort. And so you have a sentence that has been strung out of the meaning of the Hebrew names. Well, the other one is Abigail, who is one of David's wives. And in the book of Samuel, Daniel is basically running a protection racket down in the Negev and the Shephelah, and he's sent to where the sheep shearing is to get his protection money for keeping the Philistines off their back. And the guy who is shearing sheep sends his collecting guys packing. And David, being disrespected, hats up a bunch of his guys and is heading north, and he's going to wipe the guy out. And on the way, he meets the guy's wife, whose name is Abigail. And, of course, Abigail means my father's delight. And she brings down cakes of raisins and bread and, and all sorts of stuff because she realizes her husband has made a serious error by sending David's men packing. Well, her husband is named Nabal. And in Hebrew, Nabal means fool. And, of course, he is, in the story, a fool. And when he finds out what's almost happened, he, in fact, has a heart attack and dies, which is how David winds up with Abigail. So if I were a liberal, which I'm not, I would say that these names are picked to further the story. So like the names of the Antediluvians in Genesis, gee, it seems to me like whoever wrote that down, Moses, picked those names so as to tell a story. Maybe he did. I am inclined to think that there were guys by that name, and they wrote them down and didn't know what they were doing until we, 4,000, 5,000 years later, look at it and say, wow. Ruth is in the line of David, and David's a big heavy hitter in the Bible. And at the end of this, we're going to have the fact that David is born. So the writer of this story knows of David. So for him to write a story then that tells the lineage and backstory of David and throw in a couple of interesting names that match the character of the two guys, certainly plausible, and I'm not casting any doubt on the veracity of the names. I'm simply saying 
this kind of stuff shows up all over the Bible. And figuring out whether it's somebody telling a story and picking names so that it's really cool. Sort of like when I was a kid, used to watch old cowboy matinees. You know, the Saturday matinee where you would go to the movie and you would watch it and it'd be a serial and you'd go the next time. You knew instantly that anybody named Kincaid was a bad guy. Anyway, onward. Verse 2. The name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife Naomi. The names of his two sons were Mahalon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahalon and Chilion died. So then the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Orpah means gazelle. The equivalent today would be fawn. You, you ever met a girl named fawn? Graceful, typical feminine kind of a name. And then Ruth means friendship. So they've immigrated to Moab and gone native. And all the men in the family have died. So that you now have three widows who were abandoned together, and it's their household. So verse 6, Then she, which is Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard that in the fields of Moab the Lord had visited his people and given them food. In other words, the famine is over. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go. Return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. So what she's saying is, all three of us are widows. I'm going back to my people in my country. Parenthesis, not stated, but obvious. You two are Moabites. And Moabites, it says in the Torah, are not to come into the council of Israel to the 10th generation. So you're not going to be terribly welcome back in my home. Better that you go back to your own people and find husbands so that you can then continue on with your life. Because I have nothing for you. And going back to Judah, there isn't going to be anything for you either. All that sort of parenthetical because of who they are. Verse 10, and they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? So notice what the implication here is. That these two widows will marry the offspring of Naomi to continue the line of Elimelech. Remember we started off talking about this as a story of Leverite marriage. Yaboom in, in uh, Hebrew. So what she is assuming here is if we go back your only reasonable prospect for marriage would be to one of my sons because some kinsman might marry me. 
I might then have a son, and then one of you could marry that son, and so continue the line of the three dead guys. That's the assumption in her statement there. And what she's saying is, A, I'm too old to have children, probably in her 40s or 50s. One assumes that she's postmenopausal, so she's not going to have any sons. And furthermore, we can assume that her daughters-in-law are easily in their 20s, so by the time a boy baby of hers would get to be of marriageable age, they're probably going to be outside of the window of childbearing also. So she says, this isn't going to work. If you're going to have any kind of a life for yourself, go back to your own people. Your people will accept you. My people will not accept you. So go back to them. Find somebody to get married to and, and raise a family and have a good life. In other words, she's trying to do for them the best that she knows how. She's not grumpy with them. She's not rejecting them in any sense. She's just trying to do for them the best she is able. Verse 12, turn back my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. So it's bitter to her for the sake of her daughters-in-law that things are working out this way. The thing that she is concerned about is the fact that their lives are messed up. Uh, certainly, I'm sure she has some sorrow for her own situation, but the, in the speech at least, what she's really worried about is the, the hand that's been dealt to her daughters-in-law. Verse 14, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, Naomi again, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Now, this is a fairly key phrase. Not only are they going back to their people, they are going back to their gods. And one presumes that Naomi is a believer in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So at this point, thinks that the best thing for her daughters-in-law is to return to the gods of her own people. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. Ruth's speech here is been set to music by some of the great composers of European history. It's a very famous speech and it's been set to music by lots and lots of composers because it is so beautiful. The other thing that's going on here is Naomi has told her daughters-in-law to leave three times. And it is now rabbinic tradition that if someone wants to convert to Judaism, they will tell you no three times and try and dissuade you. And if after the third time 
you are insistent, then they will accept and will take you on as a proselyte and begin the process of converting you to Judaism. And that tradition comes from here. Verse 19. So the two of them went out until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? Mara means bitter. You all remember the story of the prodigal son? When the prodigal son comes back, his father, on seeing him come back, hikes up his skirts and runs the length of the town to grab him and kiss him. And the reason his father does that is because it's a small town. And as this wayward son is coming back into town, you can hear the popcorn popping as they are all going to watch what the father does to this little snot that took his father's goods and wasted them. And it's going to be a two-bag-of-popcorn event, you know, watch. And the same thing isn't quite going on here in Bethlehem, but again, it's a small town. And everybody there knows Naomi. And so the idea that she went away during a time of trouble and has come back in distress like she is, is going to be the subject of gossip. There's going to be tongues wagging. That's what's going on here. The comment was that Naomi telling her daughters-in-law to leave three times reminded him of Peter denying Yeshua three times. And of course, the bookend to that story is after the resurrection, when Yeshua meets them on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Yeshua asks him three times, Peter, do you love me? So what Yeshua does is has Peter back out those three denials. In other words, Peter denies three times, Yeshua says three times, do you love me? That, if you will, is a process of unsaying or backing out those things that were said. Yeah, good, good catch. So verse 22. So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And of course, the barley harvest happens at Passover. So they are coming back during the Passover season. Actually, Passover would have just happened. They're in the process of harvesting barley. Chapter 2. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech. So remember, Elimelech is the father-in-law, deceased, of Ruth. So Boaz is of the same family as Elimelech. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. So Ruth says to Naomi, we need to get some food. So what she's going to do is she is going to go in and glean in the fields because they need the food. So let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, 
who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now this has been said twice now. You have a chiasm there. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. They answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz says to his young men, who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. So you need to understand what's going on. You all know the Torah. And the Torah says that you will allow the poor to glean your fields afterwards. You will not reap to the corners of the fields. You'll leave some for the poor. And if you forget a sheaf in the field, that you will not go back and get it. So the system is that the poor are allowed to glean. But notice that it is not risk-free. So what he's told his young men is, you keep an eye on her and make sure that nobody molests her. And he tells her, stay in my field, parenthesis, where you will be safe. And what he will then tell his young men is, let her glean, and even if she comes among the sheaves, let her continue to glean. Now, one of the things that happens with charity is the people who receive charity are often more aggressive than the one who gives charity wants to have happen. So if you've got gleaners coming through the field as you're reaping, they tend to sort of crowd in and move up and you gotta shoo them away. Otherwise, they'll be right up there reaping with you. I don't know about you, but I'm speaking in generalization. I have had it happen to me on several occasions where I've done nice things for poor people and they've turned around and taken advantage. So the fact that you're poor does not make you righteous. And so what is being said here is, watch this young woman, make sure nobody harms her, and he will say in just a minute, by the way, let her even come up among the sheep. So make sure she gets a full amount. She is obviously young enough that she's decorative. And later on, when she comes to the field and propositions him, he will say, you could have gone after a younger man. And he is very flattered that she has instead gone after him. So I'm assuming that he's 40s or 50s, and he owns a field. He's got people working for him. So he's not some 19-year-old punk. He's, he's an older man. The other part of that is you don't know that he is not married. It just does not say. And it was certainly biblically allowable to have multiple wives going back to live right marriage. Got two brothers. Both of them are married. One of them dies. In the Torah, it doesn't say anything about marry your brother's widow unless you're married yourself. It doesn't say that in the Torah. So it's entirely possible. Notice I said possible. This is all speculation. We don't know. But certainly from a Torah perspective, there isn't any problem with him redeeming Ruth 
if he also has another wife. I mean, it, all that would be perfectly legal. Nothing about that is stated in here, so that it's all just speculation. Boaz could be a widower. I mean, there's all sorts of things could be going on here, none of which are stated in the story. We just have no idea. So Boaz means strength within or fleetness or swift strength. Verse 10, Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. Remember we talk about gossip? And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. But we will hear that again. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Very polite exchange. He has taken notice of her, but at this point it's very, very formal. Verse 14. And in the meantime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reaper, and he passed to her roasted grain, and she ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So the idea here is the reapers are going to reap, they're going to bind the shocks of grain, and then they're going to stack them. And what they don't want is gleaners wandering among the cut grain because some of the shocks of grain may disappear. And what Boaz says to them is, let her glean even among the sheaves, and oh, by the way, make sure that she gleans a lot. 17. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. An ephah is about three-fifths of a bushel, which for a day's work is a pretty good amount of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Remember, they fed her lunch, and she brought back the parched grain. And her mother-in-law said, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She has not said anything at this point. But Naomi looks at the hall and says, Wow, somebody has clearly granted you favor for you to be able to glean and come back with that much stuff. So blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. So Boaz is a kinsman of Elimelech. So he is not only doing a kindness to a foreigner who happens to be poor, who happens to be gleaning in his field, he is also doing a kindness to the widow of the family, Naomi and, and her daughter-in-law. So it, it's both the living and the dead. He's doing kindness to us, but he's also doing a kindness to my husband and my son. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. 
And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, You shall keep close to my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, It is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So a single woman, unmarried, unattached, who is wandering around among the field hands, is in some danger. So Boaz has told his young men, keep an eye on her. Make sure that nothing happens to her. And Naomi reinforces that by saying, you make sure you stay in his field, you stay with his women, because if you show up somewhere else, you might get assaulted. Verse 23. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvests, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Notice we have skipped forward three months. She gleaned till the end of the barley harvest, and then she also gleans to the end of the wheat harvest, which is Shavuot. So we have now moved from Passover to Shavuot in the story. I think we'll stop there and we'll pick up the next two next time. And what I will do next time, as I did the introduction here, what the story means from a Christian perspective, what we'll do is we'll pick it up from a rabbinic perspective next time. They're very similar, and they're both correct. They're both wonderful interpretations of the story, both of them entirely correct, but the Christians see it in terms of Yeshua and the kinsman redeemer and the bride of Christ, if you will, which is a very sound view. I am not poo-pooing it in any way. It's a good view. I like it. The rabbis that I've read have a different perspective, which is also correct, and we'll talk about that next time. Et ha-shamah.